Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm the Architecture Program Curator here at the RA. It's a great pleasure to welcome today to the Royal Academy to New York-based practice, Holwitz Kastner, as part of our International Architect Series. Holwitz Kastner was founded 10 years ago by Matthias Holwitz, who is here today with us, and Mark Kastner. And since then, they have gained widespread international reputation, not only for their building project, but also for founding the digital platform Architizer, which is now the largest database of architecture online. It was in back 2012 when probably most of us heard for the first time about the practice, and that was because they won the uh, MoMA PS1 Young Architect program with an air cleaning blue spike installation called Wendy. Since then, they have completed many other remarkable projects, including a sculptural timber leisure pavilion at Fire Island Pines in New York, also a transformation of a 20th century paint factory into an innovation center at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, more recently, uh, just a couple of months ago probably, 53-story tower apartment skyscraper in New Jersey together with Handel Architects. Today, uh, as I said, we are joined by Matthias Holwitz. Uh, Matthias is an architect, uh, principal of Holwitz Kattner, and co-founder of Architizer. He has been a visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and last year he published a new aging with uh, Penguin Books. Please give a warm welcome to Matthias. Good evening. It's a total honor to be here. What is surprising for me that this is actually 10 years now that uh, I started to work with Mark Kushner, uh, with our architectural firm, Holwitz uh, Kushner. And in this 10 years, uh, we started to explore the future of architecture. And uh, we actually started out not really with a real plan, but with a lot of curiosity, energy, and kind of a relentless search for the potential of shaping tomorrow. During that journey, we found many different incredible new findings that we now, in the retrospective of the last 10 years, started to analyze. And you're actually here today, are the first one to hear our thoughts. And we also realized that we may have a lot of visions, but visions without execution is hallucination, as Tom Edison once said. Our first finding is that we have to have good intention. A good intention is the attitude of a building towards the larger issues in the world, from questions of sustainability, social equality, to its role potentially as a life extender. Now let's start with sustainability. We all know that architecture is using 40% of all energy consumed in the world today. And we're all working really, really hard to make a difference, to make that less uh, at any kind of given time with our new projects. But we found out that there are many more possibilities that we are able to explore. One of them, for example, is a new material. It is called Titania nanoparticle. It's magical. When Titanium nanoparticle is being hit, by the sun, it eliminates pollution. This is Wendy. 
with the amount of fabric that we, we were able to bring into this uh, installation, we were able to eliminate 260 cars pollutions at any given time. And this project is not just a fun kind of symbol of sustainability, it is also an object that people instantly related to. Where we found out that there is something more than just the performance of ecology, there's also that kind of emotional kind of tie that is being created through architecture that can create an enthusiasm about a new way of life, a new way of dealing with sustainability. But it's not all just about materials. There are also other means that we have to take charge in. One of them is, for example, the fear or the danger of rising sea levels with our global warming. A project which was actually the first one that we explored between Mark and me 10 years ago is called Skygrove. This is a building that takes the rising sea levels very serious, braces itself through root systems into the ground to be able to withstand any kind of superstorm in the future. So this is a building that is an emergency means for our humanity in the future but it also can just act as a warning sign for all of us that this is a time to take charge and to change our way of life. We hope that a design like this can inspire people to make some difference in their own lives. Drive a different car, turn off the light earlier at home, recycle. All of these kind of things uh, are possible when we inspire people through architecture about a different way of life. And that is an intention that we have for a new idea of sustainability, but it goes much further because good intention can come into any kind of different direction where we see an urgent need. Another one where we see huge potential is longevity. It is absolutely fantastic that our generation uh, and our society is getting older. Uh, it used to be that people turned 65 and now it's 75, 85, 95, which is amazing. But what we lack still today is that we as an architectural community really look for the right solutions for people to live in the places that they deserve. This is a project which is called BOOM. A couple of years ago we assembled a group of architects from around the world, including Lotech, Jürgen Meyer, Diloscofidio Renfro, and together we prototyped a future retirement community that we called Empowerment Community. It was intended to be a place for people above 75. We realized it should be above, above 65, 55, 45, 35, and as longer we worked on this concept, we realized that it is actually important to create environments that's good for older people uh, in any kind of place and not just a specialized environment that is a retirement community. Because age segregation is a real challenge that we have to take serious and we have to eliminate again. Because we as a community in the, kind of in the variation of ages and races and uh, religions are the stronger ones and we as architects have to make sure that we can support it also with our architectural designs and our programming ideas. This is actually why we took an initiative and designed a truly intergenerational building. This is just a vision which is called Skylar. 
where we intend to have 1,000 people in that building of all ages, which is actually fascinating. Because here in this building, we have 150 people above 65, but that number going to double in the next 30 years. We also have these transitional moments you see in the design, which are the moments where we change in our lives. The first one is growing up and we get education. The next one is retirement, where we go into post-retirement, where we have to look into meaningful activities. And the third one is spiritual support and also healthcare support. Now think about it. When you have a thousand people of all ages in here, just five people actually need healthcare support. So now we have 995 people who can come by visit and say hello. When does that ever happen? All the people are stuck in nursing homes together with another 100 older people where it's impossible to help each other. So actually looking into that kind of new idea of diversity again can really make a big difference and has a great intention for the future of our world. A second point we found out is social intelligence. To unfold its full potential, a building needs to engage with people who need to use every opportunity to make sure people come visit, stay, meet, and experience. This is Social Architecture 2.0. This is something we actually found out when we started to work on Architizer, which today has grown into the largest social media company for architects in the world. And how strange is it that social media sounds hip and cool and we think about cats and smiling babies and we think about social architecture and we shiver and uh, we see these uh, big kind of social housing blocks in front of us which have utterly failed. So this is actually what we found out by starting uh, Architizer. It was intended just to bring out progressive architecture into the world and tell people uh, what we as a profession really are passionate about beautiful design and make that public to the people. And what we realized is that there's an incredible response from the people, an incredible interest about architecture. And we can look into click rates and we realize that people love cantilevers. They love exotic looking buildings. They like green in buildings. We had all of these kind of data where we saw that people respond so positively about what we do. And they share these pictures, they talk about it, they engage with architecture. So there's huge potential that we can redefine the meaning of social architecture already through acknowledging the, and the engagement of people with it. But now we can also take that away from the social media back into the architecture, back into the buildings, because we know that people want to socialize and want to engage with each other. This is why we think that the we in architecture is something we should take very, very serious again. It should be a capital we, because it's not about designing buildings for the individual, it's about designing buildings for the community where the individuals are part of it. And there are incredible companies out there right now which create a revolution about the we. One of our clients is actually called WeWork. And for the last two years, we have prototyped the future of living with them, which is called We Live. We created very efficient buildings that work very economically, but then also break them open, where we have all the kind of social amenities kind of exposed, 
and create an incredible relationship between the outside and the inside so that actually the neighborhood can engage with the building's inhabitants. But within the building, we changed everything. From one-bedroom apartments, now an apartment that can be shared by four people. A hallway that turns into an amenity of a social space where people meet and greet. A connecting stair between three different floors where finally people engage again with each other and actually start to say hello. And the biggest test for me is always to take an elevator. When was the last time you walked into an elevator and to talk to another person? It always happens when you go into We Live. People talk, people engage, people um, engage on all kinds of levels. And um, for us, it's also important to find the possibility that even that we develop micro-housing opportunities, that you compensate that also with the places of intimacy and the places of social activity. And all of that can happen within buildings, but we also have to make sure that it has to happen when we go grand in bigger scales of large-scale developments where they have to engage with the we in the urban uh, environment. This is Journal Square. Journal Square in New Jersey is a place that has not seen any development for the last was 40 years. And the city gave us 25 FAR and we were able to build 1,800 apartments here. Here, the V is important because this is a, a massive building just being plumped into an existing neighborhood and designing actually all the different parts of the public plazas, the retail environments and also the amenity spaces that they engage with the people and connect the new residents with um, with the neighborhood and the people who live there already for a while. And we can see incredible new opportunities, especially at transportation hubs, because this is a new generation which doesn't own a car anymore. So here we actually located just up on top of a pass station, 10 minutes away from New York, and we can actually ignite a whole new kind of community that started with, with a large-scale development but also then migrate into the community with all the kind of different uh, social aspects that we can uh, curate and activate with our ideas. And when we look deeper into the bones of architecture, we realize that we need purpose. Purpose goes above and beyond the function of an architecture program and adds a reason for the building to be here. Purpose might be make people feel good, fall in love with each other, or just be creative. We call it intentional programming. Every building has a program, right? Sometimes it's an office building, it's an apartment building. This one here is a innovation center for the University of Pennsylvania. This is the building they gave us. But a little bit outside of the university, quite meaningless. So what we developed with the university is an extension of programs that we added to that existing building, which turn an uh, innovation center into a business-making engine. This is where you see additional programs of a pitch bleacher, an entrepreneur bar, a visitor center, a boardroom. And then we shape that into a recognizable form because we also know that there's an incredible power of an image of a building that communicates the values of the building and the community within to the world. 
Here we can really see how a purpose unfolds all of its potential. And it's already proven today that actually after finishing, the building was instantly fully leased. Two of the new companies in there have already gotten the seed funding. And the building is an attractor to a whole new breed of entrepreneurs who don't just want to come up with great ideas. They also want to create a great business. And the building facilitates that. In addition, of course, we also took all the tools within the building to design it in a way that it is not precious, not threatening, not sci-fi, because a lot of innovation centers today are designed like from outer space, but people are afraid to actually alter it and change it and take authorship of the spaces they use. Here we see the pitch bleacher, which is durable and uh, out of just bare-bone concrete, and I wouldn't mind when any one of these entrepreneurs just takes a drill, drills a hole through the walls because they need to have a new pipe over here because that is what really is most important, that we have to empower the people to follow the purpose and make the places, make it for themselves. And this is a, something where we really see also sometimes that kind of a barrier or boundary of how far we want to pitch, pitch um, uh, push the whole idea of design and sometimes also take a step back so that actually the program and uh, the people can really take charge and take over the spaces that we have so carefully designed. And we can go further with these kind of ideas. At the Penovation Center you saw that we put the purpose onto that kind of north facade but you see all of these buildings all over the world where we have uh, incredible, beautiful crowns in high-rise buildings. Here the Chrysler Building, beautiful, light and sculpture. But what we believe is that actually that penthouse level deserves a whole different purpose. It deserves people. So what we're doing here in a concept for a micro-housing uh, building in New York, we turned the diagram around. We actually put all the people into the crown and activated the crown with the social activities. So this is when you have a micro-housing uh, building where it is incredible tight and dense where you live. Uh, you want to unfold, of course, the space and the community at the most precious and the best place there is. So this is why we believe that uh, people should be there over a penthouse and make that, again, a recognizable purpose for people to long for and to look at and to be inspired by. And this can be done with apartment buildings, but of course there is also the use for it in all kinds of other typologies. There can be office buildings which finally upgrade the roofs into incredible event spaces for the people. Or here a hotel where we created a hotel bar on top of the building and we all know that the hotels make the most money, of course, at the bars or in the roof bar on the top. But we also know that this is where people make their memories. And especially when the spaces are also publicly available, it creates a kind of intermixing with the neighborhood and the people around it, so that actually a building <coughs> inspires people to come and join, become curious, and may join the community within such a building. This is where we see the change, what today, or let's say yesterday, was always the big message from real estate. It is about location, location, location. We believe today and tomorrow it is about purpose, which can actually create a location. 
and create a place where people want to be. Our fourth point is that we have to create an imaginative evolution. When creating buildings, it is not enough to introduce slight variations from one new structure to the next, as if we are conducting a cloning experiment. Each and every building needs to derive from a unique set of rules. One of them is form, is function. And I do have to apologize to Mies. Sorry for that. I disagree that form is function. Because we have learned that actually the industry is tapping into the form to actually enhance the experience of products. Think about the iPhone, how much we love it, and how much the form and the design actually creates a relationship with us. Or here, Frank Gehry, one of the first ones actually using a building, the Bilbao, the Guggenheim Bilbao, to rebrand a whole city with architecture. So there doesn't need to be a Bilbao, it can be much smaller. So this is a beloved uh, nightclub in a gay resort that's called uh, Fire Island Pines. And the renovation actually, which wasn't much loved, burned down and everyone was quite uh, relieved, <laughs> including us, because we got the commission to redesign it. And we designed a building that uh, rebrands, uh, rebranded the whole community and it's all right. And also what was important for us, that it actually reflected the new relationship between the LGBT community and everyone else. Before the building was enclosed and kind of secretive, now it's open and embracing the people, airy and inviting people to join the community. If you're gay or not gay, you're always welcome. And what is so interesting is that one building out of 650 homes that's out there on Fire Island changed the image of the whole community and really added uh, an incredible emotional component to it, which we see here also when it's filled up with people on 4th of July. So we see that actually form as a function, it's really an incredible potent tool that we can use in architecture. But we have to be aware that uh, we shouldn't go overboard and always just go in uh, with our design ambitions with spectacular forms. This is just an apartment building in New Jersey. And sometimes we call it actually a rental building in a designer suit. Here, we had to restrain the form again to actually really reduce it down to an essence of nice proportions of a building. But even though that this building is just a big 422-unit apartment building, the trick is that the design of some of the details of the window frames, the use of materials, um, the, uh, the kind of attention to details, really made a huge difference just in terms of the relationship from people moving into that building. This building is built also in New Jersey, and it won a leasing record where 422 units were leased in three months. So where we saw that actually through that kind of restrained kind of identity and the restrained form, but a passion for detail, it also kind of followed its mission and made the difference how people engage with it. And also to acknowledge that it made our client very happy that it was able to be leased in such a rapid space. And you see already through the use of form and architecture, uh, we believe that we have to trigger curiosity. Curiosity for me is one of the most amazing tools that we have. Because just think about it. When you're curious, you have not made a judgment yet. You become interested. 
and you engage with, with whatever you're curious about and explore it without uh, judging. So in architecture, especially when, to, when you want to introduce something new or when you bring a new building into a community, it is actually important to activate people with curiosity, to engage with the building and engage with the people. And there's so many ways how we can generate that kind of curiosity. One of them, for example, here in a 40,000 square foot office building we're building right now in Williamsburg, is just to punch a big hole through the building that is kind of weirdly shaped, but it's also open to the public and has incredible programs within, from all kind of retail and workshop spaces, maker spaces, all of that uh, is just set out to integrate the building instantly into its community and invite people to come by, become curious, and check it out for once. Here it is just punching a big hole through the building. But there's so many other ideas that we can use in any kind of different fashion. For example, here in Hamburg, we can just shave off a part of an extremely efficient building and guide people into the entrance areas, into the retail between these big office buildings. Or a very efficient apartment building, again, in New Jersey, just cutting off a part as a negative reveal, allowing views through the building, but also creating a form that makes people interested in. Or a hotel, the Yotel that we're doing in Williamsburg, also just rising up with uh, apartments uh, above the highway, uh, making you interested in the content of a building. Or a just typical sculptural form of a building we're doing right now on a waterfront in Washington, D.C., that will be the icon of a large-scale development around it. And we can always play around with a little bit of landscaping uh, and integrating it into a blurred boundary between outside and inside and also between architecture and landscape pieces. So here, you can just imagine in Utah that people are going to be curious just to check out the building, visit the inhabitants, and ask them who they are and how they are, and with that actually using architecture again through the tool of curiosity to make a difference in the building and the shaping of a social relationship between people. And you see that there are lots of elements that, where I always talk about the community. And I must admit that I am incredibly bored by traveling around and see buildings that look the same in New York and in Beijing and probably in London. So there is something about the local quality that we believe we have to embrace again. Because there is an incredible power in the absorption of local qualities and the reinvention that turns a building into something new. Culture is what defines us, but it cannot be stagnant. It has to evolve and find new variations of expression. Since we are surrounded by modernism, I think it is important to update it. Because modernism has kind of run its course, and in many occasions it has actually turned into just a style. The Bauhaus tried really, really hard to break through that threshold and they organized a competition where we had two winners. The first one totally out of the box, far out into the future. And the second first prize is something that looked just like the Bauhaus, the way how Gropius would have designed it. But we believe that there is actually a third way how we can actually use the DNA and the ideas of the modernism and the Bauhaus and reinvent it by gradually bringing in things that are much more contemporary, 
uh, that could be, for example, just using uh, the materials and the forms and making them a little bit more abstract, maybe a little bit more iconic, but then also just being playful and lifting it up so that the building itself becomes a much more curious object uh, that refers partially to maybe the heritage of the Bauhaus, but also really looks into something that is much more uh, playful and engaged with our pop culture. Because the Bauhaus and modernism is actually not a style. It is actually the idea of progress. And it's interesting how we can actually use now these elements in these designs and look into the future and transform them into the future. And uh, we can see that in, in many different uh, variations. We can do that with uh, buildings and architecture. But there's also now something that we can do on an urban level. Because a lot of the urban planning is still rooted in ideas from uh, the Bauhaus time, which is part of the 60s with some of the brutalism that was implemented throughout the world. And guess what? A client asked us, what can we do with our buildings that are all from the 60s in Crystal City? And we told them, it's like, don't worry about it. The hipsters are going to run out of warehouses very, very soon. And guess where they're going to go? It's the 60s. So there's an incredible moment now where we as architects become aware that there's a very strong value that's within these buildings. This is probably the most generic version of the 60s um, uh, here in Crystal City. All just concrete buildings, um, very generic forms. But now when we want to reinvent such an urban environment, what we decided on is that we're updating it. We didn't want to create a revolution, we wanted to create an evolution. So taking these proportions, stretching them higher into scale, and now actually just have fun with them and be playful and shuffle the, the um, balconies around so that they become playful and sculptural objects within the very restrained, uh, horizontally organized um, uh, neighborhood of Crystal City. And what's so important about actually that kind of strategy <coughs> is if we would have designed something very exotic and out of the box of a building into Crystal City, it would have made everything around it look worse. Our intention was to use actually the language of the 60s, reinvent it, and now make everything around it look better. Pretty good for our client, they have 15 million square foot of office spaces which are now portrayed into the future. And with that, actually really uh, kind of create a new face within an aging uh, office park uh, close to Washington, D.C. But we don't want to stop just with uh, reinventing uh, modernism. There's a whole new idea of the new local uh, that we are interested in. But we don't want to go retro. And obviously, we also don't want to go in any kind of, um, uh, let's say, uh, a copy of history, again, which, which uh, postmodernism obviously has done to a large extent. This is a project which is super fun because a mayor in the middle of Indiana, in the middle of America, we call it the flyover states, uh, decided that he actually has to bring in culture into the suburb because people were moving to the city. There you have a Jefferson grid. Everything is square. So we use that square as inspiration to tie it into the local geometries, but took the square out, broke it into four different pieces, and established four different pavilions in a park. 
So now we have an incredible diagram of a community, of a um, suburb coming together, but also individuality. So we see these objects, which are all kind of have their own different form and the different shapes. And the material that we decided to use is actually Indiana limestone. That is from a quarry, which is just very nearby, so that we're using actually first the geometry out of the Jefferson grid, and then the materiality that comes directly from its location. And what is so fascinating here is that actually the quarry uh, going to be the Empire State uh, Quarry. This is where the stone for the Empire State building was harvested. So we're actually creating a whole story now between uh, four little baby pavilions in Indiana uh, with directly a relationship to the, probably the parent uh, the Empire State Building in New York. And using that material actually made the whole community enthusiastic about the building because there is something about that kind of local emotion that doesn't need to come through a form or a style, that can also come through a materiality or any kind of other things that we can absorb from the surrounding uh, from which we can learn from. Or another project that is actually just about to go into construction in Jerusalem. Our client apologized to us that we had to use Jerusalem stone, and we were thrilled. So we used the proportions of the building, and we blended it into the new object uh, of the addition of the Jerusalem Academy of Music and Dance, and we pixelated it now with the exterior material of Jerusalem stone. And we turned it by 45 degrees, so to create a little bit of an unusual texture in the building, and then we eroded it in the areas where we have the main entrance and some of the public spaces within the building. So that there is a beautiful kind of symbiosis between the old and the new, the glass and the uh, Jerusalem stone, that again makes you curious about the building. I'm sure you, I would hope that you're interested to go into it. But it also really tied the building into the larger context of the city. So that kind of absorption of local materials and more local traditions had really two different effects for us. The first one is that uh, it tied the building into its context, but also made the, con uh, the building special in its own right. But for me, even more important is that now this building will have a relationship to Jerusalem in its own right, and it actually going to make Jerusalem uh, even more exotic and more special. So there is a, an incredible potential that we have for the buildings to not see these buildings again just as uh, their own kind of entities. We see these buildings with the absorption of local qualities really as participants in the kind of beauty of our cities. And sometimes I think that actually cities should overrule anything that we do uh, as architects with our singular buildings. And these old materials and that kind of beauty that they can generate and also the longevity is another point uh, that we reflected on in our last 10 years. It is about character. Because we believe that beauty is fluid and might pass. We all experience it. I'm 45 at this point. But character weathers the storm and has longevity. Most people choose character over beauty in their own relationships. When we worked on that uh, intergenerational project, we intentionally looked into a new design language that is not about beauty and about character. 
So what we did here is creating a building that doesn't look into uh, beauty because that also comes from ideas of uh, youth culture. And when you want to design something that deals with aging, you have to find new ideas and new methodologies. So here, it is not a beautiful building, but because of its shaping and its awkwardness and its kind of sense of curiosity, it has a character that is unique to itself. But it's also different from every different angle, so that wherever you go, you might going to see some other facets of the building. This is also what we hope and expect what people would do. People have with us a very short chat, but hopefully there's more that we can interest that other person. So here the form is intentionally shaped into an idea of that kind of character. But the materiality is also something we looked into to make sure that the building is actually uh, not just beautiful at uh, the moment of construction, that it has also longevity built in so that it can age in grace and really have, uh, have something beautiful built in in the long term. And uh, here, this is a building where we looked into that kind of uh, shaping of a character, but it doesn't need to be an object. We can also turn that into an urban quality. This is our newest project right now in Munich, where we intentionally didn't design buildings. We actually designed the space in between. And we made sure that every one of these public spaces, these public intersections, have its own kind of character, its own kind of identity, but it's also that they are not really clear in terms of its form, so that it's always interesting for people to come back, explore more of the details between the buildings, and then join the community, join the people, go into these cafes and experience that kind of public life. Here in London, you have that all built in into the city. Every corner is different. Everywhere you become curious and you become interested. And there's this clash of different elements. So that is something where Munich is much more uh, designed in this singular aesthetic. Uh, we looked into actually roughing it up and finding this idea of a character also within um, the public space. And all of that brings me to the last point, where we believe that actually architecture are much more of an asset than a product. Many of us had looked into inspiration of product design and want to use that also to design buildings. And uh, the beautiful example is also how that works out. With inspirations maybe from a Nike shoe or for a car, it's also very much geared towards, of course, the use of some of the softwares that we share with some of the other creative um, uh, disciplines. But it's so interesting when you go to New York and you research which ones are the top 10 buildings that people want to visit, you realize that these are all buildings that were built before the 30s. And these buildings were maybe not beautiful and recognized at that time, but now today they have that kind of presence and that aura that is just incredible, worthwhile visiting. So what we're doing right now, we're just play, playing around with ideas of copying actually some of that kind of personality of these buildings that we all treasure and appreciate and just test new proportions, new materials, new design elements in which we are able to actually re-achieve this kind of longevity in our designs so that these buildings that we are hopefully able to build in a few years from now uh, will look even better in 30 years than they look at the moment when they are being created. And that is something for us, uh, it's an incredible paradigm change. 
where we don't try to design buildings anymore for today and tomorrow. We should actually design buildings for in 30 years, 50 years, or 100 years from now. That is also a question of flexibility within the interior organization of buildings. It is about the proportions and the materiality that we imply. And uh, it is about something that uh, has, I wouldn't say like a timelessness, uh, but it definitely has uh, something um, that goes outside of uh, the box of a particular trend. The beauty is here that now these buildings will generate actually more value over time so that we can argue also against our clients uh, when sometimes it's just about short-term investment strategies that these buildings, when they hold them and keep them and also uh, use them in a much more respectful way in terms of uh, the use of energy and, uh, uh, and materials, uh, that this is a long-term investment for, the, for them, and with that also really a long-term investment, of course, of buildings into, um, uh, into the future and for our cities. So this was a little bit of a reflection um, of our work of the last 10 years, and I invite all of you to look into the future of your work with buildings that have good intentions, trigger curiosity, have character, have a lot of social heart in them because ultimately we want to make people happy in our buildings. And this is just the beginning. So and we're very curious about what, are the, what the next 10 years are going to give to us uh, with all the kind of different curiosities and explorations in architecture. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.